Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings and salutations, gentle listeners. You've chosen to enter Agoraphobia 2017 the second annual installment of the Agora Podcast Network's month of spooky, macabre, and strange fiction and non-fiction stories celebrating the spirit of Halloween. Our first tale today comes from I, Thomas Daly, who, with the help of the history of China's Chris Stewart and Wittenberg to Westphalia's Benjamin Jacobs, present a dramatic reading of Washington Irving's classic American twist on an old Faustian tale, The Devil and Tom Walker. A few miles from Boston, in Massachusetts, there is a deep inlet winding several miles into the interior of the country from Charles Bay and terminating in a thickly wooded swamp or morass. On one side of this inlet is a beautiful dark grove. On the opposite side, the land rises abruptly from the water's edge into a high ridge, on which grow a few scattered oaks of great age and immense size. Under one of these gigantic trees, according to old stories, there was a great amount of treasure buried by Kid the pirate. The inlet allowed a facility to bring the money in a boat secretly and at night to the very foot of the hill. The elevation of the place permitted a good lookout to be kept that no one was at hand, while the remarkable trees formed good landmarks by which the place might easily be found again. The old stories add, moreover, that the devil presided at the hiding of the money and took it under his guardianship. But this, it is well known, he always does with buried treasure, particularly when it has been ill-gotten. Be that as it may, Kidd never returned to recover his wealth, being, shortly after seized at Boston, sent out to England, and there hanged for a pirate. About the year 1727, just as the time that earthquakes were prevalent in New England, and shook many tall sinners down upon their knees, there lived near this place a meager, miserly fellow of the name of Tom Walker. He had a wife as miserly as himself. They were so miserly that they even conspired to cheat each other. Whatever the woman could lay hands on, she hid away. A hen could not cackle, but she was on alert to secure the new laid egg. Her husband was continually prying about to detect her secret hordes, and many and fierce were the conflicts that took place about what ought to have been common property. 
They lived in a forlorn-looking house that stood alone and had an air of starvation. A few straggling savin trees, emblems of sterility, grew near it. No smoke ever curled from its chimney, no traveler stopped at its door. A miserable horse, whose ribs were as articulate as the bars of a gridiron, stalked about a field, where a thin carpet of moss, scarcely covering the ragged beds of pudding stone, tantalized and balked his hunger, and sometimes he would lean his head over the fence, look piteously at the passer-by, and seem to petition deliverance from this land of famine. The house and its inmates had altogether a bad name. Tom's wife was a tall termagant, fierce of temper, loud of tongue and strong of arm. Her voice was often heard in wordy warfare with her husband, and his face sometimes showed signs that their conflicts were not confined to words. No one ventured, however, to interfere between them. The lonely wayfarer shrank within himself at the horrid clamor and clapper-clawing, eyed the den of discord askance, and hurried on his way, rejoicing, if a bachelor, in his celibacy. One day that Tom Walker had been to a distant part of the neighborhood, he took what he considered a shortcut homeward through the swamp. Like most shortcuts, it was an ill-chosen route. The swamp was thickly grown with great gloomy pines and hemlocks, some of them ninety feet high, which made it dark at noonday and a retreat for all the owls of the neighborhood. It was full of pits and quagmires, partly covered with weeds and mosses, where the green surface often betrayed the traveler into a gulf of black, smothering mud. There were also dark and stagnant pools, the abodes of the tadpole, the bullfrog, and the water snake, where the trunks of pines and hemlocks lay half-drowned, half-rotting, looking like alligators sleeping in the mire. Tom had long been picking his way cautiously through the treacherous forest, stepping from tuft to tuft of rushes and roots, which afforded precarious footholds among deep sloughs, or pacing carefully like a cat along the prostrate trunks of trees, startled now and then by the sudden screaming of the bittern or the quacking of a wild duck rising on the wing from some solitary pool. At length he arrived at a firm piece of ground, which ran like a peninsula into the deep bosom of the swamp. It had been one of the strongholds of the Indians during their wars with the first colonists. Here they had thrown up a kind of fort which they had looked upon as almost impregnable and had used as a place of refuge for their squaws and children. Nothing remained of the old Indian fort but a few embankments, gradually sinking to the level of the surrounding earth and already overgrown in parts by oaks and other forest trees, the foliage of which formed a contrast to the dark pines and hemlocks of the swamp. It was late in the dusk of the evening when Tom Walker reached the old fort, and he paused there a while to rest himself. Anyone but he would have felt unwilling to linger in this lonely, melancholy place, for the common people had a bad opinion of it from the stories handed down from the times of the Indian Wars, when it was asserted that the savages held incantations here and made sacrifices to the evil spirit. Tom Walker, however, was not a man to be troubled with any fears of the kind. He reposed himself for some time on the trunk of a fallen hemlock, listening to the boding cry of the tree toad, and delving with his walking staff into the mound of black mold by his feet. As he turned up the soil unconsciously, his staff struck against something hard. 
He raked it out of the vegetable mold, and lo, a cloven skull with an Indian tomahawk buried deep in it lay before him. The rust on the old weapon showed the time that had elapsed since the death blow had been given. It was a dreary memento of the fierce struggle that had taken place in this last foothold of the Indian warriors. Humph, said Tom Walker, as he gave it a kick to shake the dirt from it. Let that skull alone, said a gruff voice. Tom lifted his eyes and beheld a great black man seated directly opposite him on the stump of a tree. He was exceedingly surprised, having neither heard nor seen anyone approach, and he was still more perplexed on observing, as well as the gathering gloom would permit, that the stranger was neither Negro or Indian. It is true he was dressed in a rude Indian garb, and had a red belt or sash swathed around his body. But his face was neither black nor copper-colored, but swarthy and dingy, and begrimed with soot as if he had been accustomed to toil among fires and forges. He had a shock of coarse black hair that stood out from his head in all directions, and bore an axe on his shoulder. He scowled for a moment at Tom with a pair of great red eyes. "'What are you doing on my grounds?' said the black man, with a hoarse, growling voice. "'Your grounds,' said Tom, with a sneer. "'No more your grounds than mine. They belong to Deacon Peabody.' "'Deacon Peabody be damned,' said the stranger. "'As I flatter myself, he will be, if he does not look more to his own sins, and less to those of his neighbors. Look yonder, and see how Deacon Peabody is faring.' Tom looked in the direction that the stranger pointed, and beheld one of the great trees, fair and flourishing without, but rotten at the core, and saw that it had been nearly hewn through, so that the first high wind was likely to blow it over. On the bark of the tree was scored the name of Deacon Peabody, an eminent man who had waxed wealthy by driving shrewd bargains with the Indians. He now looked around and found most of the tall trees marked with the name of some great man of the colony, and all more or less scored by the axe. The one on which he had been seated, and which had evidently just been hewn down, bore the name of Crowninshield, and he recollected a mighty rich man of that name who made vulgar displays of wealth, which it was whispered he had acquired by buccaneering. He's just ready for a burning said the man in black, with a growl of triumph. You see, I'm likely to have a good stock of firewood for winter. But what right have you, said Tom, to cut down Deacon Peabody's timber? The right of prior claim. This woodland belonged to me long before one of your white-faced race put foot upon the soil. And pray, who are you, if I may be so bold? said Tom. Oh, I go by various names. I'm the wild huntsman in some countries, the black miner in others. In this neighborhood, I'm known by the name of the black woodsman. I am he to whom the red man consecrated the spot, and in honor of whom they now and then roasted a white man by way of sweet-smelling sacrifice. Since the red man had been exterminated by you, white savages... I amuse myself by presiding at the persecutions of Quakers and Anabaptists. I am the great patron and prompter of slave dealers, and the grand master of the Salem witches. 
The upshot of all which is, that, if I mistake not, said Tom sturdily, you are he commonly called Old Scratch. The same at your service, replied the black man with a half-civil nod. Such was the opening of this interview, according to the old story, though it has almost too familiar an air to be credited. One would think that to meet with such a singular personage in this wild, lonely place would have shaken any man's nerves, but Tom was a hard-minded fellow, not easily daunted, and he had lived so long with the termagant wife that he did not even fear the devil. It is said after this commencement they had a long and earnest conversation together as Tom returned homeward. The black man told him of great sums of money buried by Kid the pirate under the oak trees on the high ridge, not far from the morass. All these were under his command and protected by his power, so that none could find them but such as propitiated his favor. These he offered to place within Tom Walker's reach having conceived an especial kindness for him, but they were to be had only by certain conditions. What these conditions were may easily be surmised, though Tom never disclosed them publicly. They must have been very hard, for he required time to think of them, and he was not a man to stick at trifles when money was in view. When they had reached the edge of the swamp, the stranger paused. "'What proof have I that all you've been telling me is true?' said Tom. There's my signature, said the man in black, pressing his finger to Tom's forehead. So saying, he turned off among the thickets of the swamp and seemed, as Tom said, to go down, down, down into the earth until nothing but his head and shoulders could be seen, and so on until he totally disappeared. When Tom reached home, he found the black print of a finger burned as it were, into his forehead, which nothing could obliterate. The first news his wife had to tell him was the sudden death of Absalom Crowninshield, the rich buccaneer. It was announced in the papers, with the usual flourish, that a great man had fallen in Israel. Tom recollected the tree which his black friend had just hewn down, and which was ready for burning. Let the freebooter roast, said Tom. Who cares? He now felt convinced that all he had heard and seen was no illusion. He was not prone to let his wife into his confidence, but as this was an uneasy secret, he willingly shared it with her. All her avarice was awakened at the mention of hidden gold, and she urged her husband to comply with the black man's terms and secure what would make them wealthy for life. However Tom might have felt disposed to sell himself to the devil, he was determined not to do so to oblige his wife, so he flatly refused, out of the mere spirit of contradiction. Many and bitter were the quarrels they had on the subject, but the more she talked, the more resolute was Tom not to be damned to please her. At length, she determined to drive the bargain on her own account, and if she succeeded, to keep all the gain to herself. Being of the same fearless temper as her husband, she set off for the old Indian fort toward the close of a summer's day. She was many hours absent. When she came back, she was reserved and sullen in her replies. She spoke something of a black man, whom she had met about twilight, hewing at the root of a tall tree. He was sulky, however, and would not come to terms. She was to go again, with a propitiatory offering, but what it was 
she forebode to say. The next evening she set off again for the swamp with her apron heavily laden. Tom waited and waited for her, but in vain. Midnight came, but she did not make her reappearance. Morning, noon, night returned. But still, she did not come. Tom now grew uneasy for her safety, especially as he found she had carried off in her apron the silver teapot and spoons and every portable article of value. Another night elapsed, another morning came, but no wife. In a word, she was never heard of more. What was her real fate? Nobody knows. In consequence of so many pretending to know, it is one of those facts which have become confounded by a variety of historians. Some asserted that she lost her way among the tangled mazes of the swamp and sank into some pit or slough. Others, more uncharitable, hinted that she had eloped with the household booty and made off to some other province, while others surmised that the temper had decoyed her into a dismal quagmire, on top of which her hat was found lying. In confirmation of this, it was said a great black man with an axe on his shoulder was seen late that very evening coming out of the swamp, carrying a bundle tied in a check apron with an air of surly triumph. The most current and probable story, however, observes that Tom Walker grew so anxious about the fate of his wife and his property that he set out at length to seek them both at the Indian fort. During a long summer's afternoon he searched about the gloomy place, but no wife was to be seen. He called her name repeatedly, but she was nowhere to be heard. The bittern alone responded to his voice as he flew screaming by, or the bullfrog croaked dolefully from a neighboring pool. At length, it is said, just in the brown hour of twilight, when the owls began to hoot and the bats to flit about, his attention was attracted by the clamor of carrion crows hovering about a cypress tree. He looked up and beheld a bundle tied in a check apron and hanging in the branches of the tree, with a great vulture perched hard by, as if keeping watch upon it. He leapt with joy, for he recognized his wife's apron, and supposed it contained the household valuables. "'Let us get hold of the property,' said he, consolingly to himself, "'and we will endeavor to do without the woman.' As he scrambled up the tree, the vulture spread its wings wide and sailed off, screaming into the deep shadows of the forest." Tom seized the checked apron, but, woeful sight, found nothing but a heart and a liver tied up in it. Such, according to the most authentic old story, was all that was to be found of Tom's wife. She had probably attempted to deal with the black man as she had been accustomed to deal with her husband, but though a female scold is generally considered a match for the devil, yet in this instance she appears to have had the worst of it. She must have died game, however, for it is said that Tom noticed many prints of cloven feet deeply stamped about the tree, and found handfuls of hair that looked as if it had been plucked from the coarse black shock of the woodsman. Tom knew his wife's prowess by experience. He shrugged his shoulders as he looked at the signs of furious clapper-clawing. Egad, he said to himself, old Scratch must have had a tough time of it. Tom consoled himself for the loss of his property, with the loss of his wife, for he was a man of fortitude. He even felt something like gratitude toward the black woodsman who, he considered, had done him a kindness. 
he sought therefore to cultivate a further acquaintance with him but for some time was without success the old black legs played shy for whatever people may think he is not always to be had for the calling he knows how to play his cards when pretty sure of his game at length it is said when delay had wedded tom's eagerness to the quick and prepared him to agree to anything rather than not gain the promised treasure he met the black man one evening in his usual woodsman's dress with the axe on his shoulder sauntering among the swamp and humming a tune he affected to receive tom's advances with great indifference made brief replies and went on humming his tune by degrees however tom brought him to business and they began to haggle about the terms on which the former was to have the pirate's treasure there was one condition which need not be mentioned being generally understood in all cases where the devil grants favors but there were others about which though of less importance he was inflexibly obstinate he insisted that the money found through his means should be employed in his service he proposed therefore that tom should employ it in the black traffic that is to say that he should fit out a slave ship this however tom resolutely refused he was bad enough in all conscience but the devil himself could not tempt him to turn slave trader finding tom so squeamish on this point he did not insist upon it but proposed instead that he should turn usurer the devil being extremely anxious for the increase of usurers looking upon them as his peculiar people to this no objections were made for it was just to tom's taste you shall open a broker's shop in boston next month said the black man i'll do it tomorrow if you wish said tom walker you shall lend money at two per cent a month egad i'll charge four replied tom walker you shall extort bonds foreclose mortgages drive the merchants to bankruptcy i'll drive him to the devil cried tom walker you are the usurer for my money said the black legs with delight when will you want the rhino this very night done said the devil done said tom walker so they shook hands and struck a bargain a few days time saw tom walker seated behind his desk in a counting-house in boston his reputation for a ready-moneyed man who would lend money out for a good consideration soon spread abroad everybody remembers the time of governor belcher when money was particularly scarce it was a time of paper credit the country had been deluged with government bills the famous land bank had been established there had been a rage for speculating the people had run mad with schemes for new settlements for building cities in the wilderness land jobbers went about with maps of grants and townships and eldorados lying nobody knew where but which everybody was ready to purchase in a word the great speculating fever which breaks out every now and then in the country had raged to an alarming degree and everybody was dreaming of making sudden fortunes from nothing as usual the fever had subsided the dream had gone off and the imaginary fortunes with it the patients were left in doleful plight and the whole country resounded with the consequent cry of hard times at this propitious time of public distress did tom walker set up as usurer in boston his door was soon thronged by customers the needy and adventurous 
the gambling speculator, the dreaming land jobber, the thriftless tradesman, the merchant with cracked credit, in short, everyone driven to raise money by desperate means and desperate sacrifices, hurried to Tom Walker. Thus Tom was the universal friend of the needy and acted like a friend in need. That is to say, he always expected good pay and security. In proportion to the distress of the applicant was the hardness of his terms. He accumulated bonds and mortgages, gradually squeezed his customers closer and closer, and sent them at length dry as a sponge from his door. In this way, he made money hand over hand, became a rich and mighty man, and exalted his cocked hat upon change. He built himself, as usual, a vast house out of ostentation, but left the greater part of it unfinished and unfurnished out of parsimony. He even set up a carriage in the fullness of his vainglory, though he nearly starved the horses which drew it, and as the ungreased wheels groaned and screeched on the axle-trees, you would have thought you heard the souls of the poor debtors he was squeezing. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. As Tom waxed old, however, he grew thoughtful. Having secured the good things of this world, he began to feel anxious about those of the next. He thought with regret of the bargain that he had made with his black friend, and he set his wits to work to cheat him out of the conditions. He became, therefore, all of a sudden, a violent churchgoer. He prayed loudly and strenuously, as if heaven were to be taken by the force of lungs, Indeed, one might always tell when he had sinned most during the week by the clamor of his Sunday devotion. The quiet Christians who had been modestly and steadfastly traveling Zionward were struck with self-reproach at seeing themselves so suddenly outstriped in their career by this new-made convert. Tom was as rigid in religion as in money matters. He was a stern supervisor and censurer of his neighbors and seemed to think every sin entered up to their account became a credit on his own side of the page. He even talked of the expediency of reviving the persecution of Quakers and Anabaptists. In a word, Tom's zeal became as notorious as his riches. 
Still, in spite of all the strenuous attention to forms, Tom had a lurking dread that the devil, after all, would have his due. That he might not be taken unawares, therefore, it is said he always carried a small Bible in his coat pocket. He had also a great folio Bible on his counting-house desk, and would frequently be found reading it when people called on business. On such occasions, he would lay his green spectacles in the book to mark the place, while he turned round to drive some usurious bargain. Some say that Tom Walker grew a little crack-brained in his old days, and that, fancying his end approaching, he had his horse new-shod, saddled, and bridled, and buried with his feet uppermost, because he supposed that at the last day the world would be turned upside down, in which case he would find his horse standing ready for mounting, and he was determined at the worst to give his old friend a run for it. This, however, is probably a mere old wife's fable. If he really did take such a precaution, it was totally superfluous, at least so says the authentic old legend, which closes the story in the following manner. One hot summer afternoon in the dog days, just as a terrible black thunder gust was coming up, Tom sat in his counting house in his white linen cap and India silk morning gown. He was on the point of foreclosing a mortgage, by which he would complete the ruin of an unlucky land speculator, for whom he had professed the greatest friendship. The poor land jobber begged him to grant a few months' indulgence. Tom had grown testy and irritated and refused another delay. My family will be ruined and brought upon the parish, said the land jobber. Charity begins at home, replied Tom. I must take care of myself in these hard times. You've made so much money out of me, said the speculator. Tom lost his patience and his piety. The devil take me, said he, if I have made a farthing. Just then there were three loud knocks at the street door. He stepped out to see who was there. A black man was holding a black horse, which neighed and stamped with impatience. Tom, you are come for, said the black fellow gruffly. Tom shrank back, but too late. He had left his little Bible at the bottom of his coat pocket, and his big Bible on the desk buried under the mortgage he was about to foreclose. Never was sinner taken more unawares. The black man whisked him like a child into the saddle, gave the horse the lash, and away he galloped, with Tom on his back in the midst of a thunderstorm. The clerks struck their pens behind their ears and stared after him from the windows. Away went Tom Walker, dashing down the streets, his white cap bobbing up and down, his morning gown fluttering in the wind, and his steed striking fire out of the pavement at every bound. When the clerks turned to look for the black man, he had disappeared. Tom Walker never returned to foreclose the mortgage. A countryman who lived on the border of the swamp reported that, in the height of the thunder gust, he had heard a great clattering of hooves and a howling along the road, and running to the window, caught sight of a figure, such as I have described, on a horse that galloped like mad across the fields, over the hills, and down into the black hemlock swamp toward the old Indian fort and that shortly after, a thunderbolt falling in that direction seemed to set the whole forest ablaze. The good people of Boston shook their heads and shrugged their shoulders. 
but had been so much accustomed to witches and goblins and tricks of the devil in all kinds of shapes from the first settlement of the colony that they were not so much horror-struck as might have been expected trustees were appointed to take charge of tom's effects there was nothing however to administer upon on searching his coffers all his bonds and mortgages were reduced to cinders in place of gold and silver his iron chest was filled with chips and shavings two skeletons lay in his stable instead of half-starved horses and the very next day his great house took fire and was burned to the ground such was the end of tom walker and his ill-gotten wealth let all gripping money borrowers lay the story to heart the truth of it not to be doubted the very hole under the oak trees whence he dug kids money is to be seen to this day and the neighboring swamp and old indian fort are often haunted in stormy nights by a figure on horseback in morning gown and white cap which is doubtless the troubled spirit of the usurer in fact the story has resolved itself into a proverb and is the origin of the popular saying so prevalent throughout new england of the devil and tom walker Today's second story comes from an agoraphobia neophyte, Professor Claude Meyeringuzer of the Cannonball, who's here to tell about a unique late 20th century epic poem, written, it is said, with the help of voices from another world. Hi, this is Claude from the Cannonball. And I want to talk about a canonical literary text that's right up the alley this October as the barriers between our world and the other side slowly begin to recede and we risk coming into contact with the dead. There are plenty of dusty old monsters out there, Frankenstein, Dracula, and the like. There's a whole history of conjuring. You can go back to Marlowe's Dr. Faustus or even Odysseus' encounters with Calypso and Circe. The uncanny abounds, like in E.T.A. Hoffman's works, particularly The Sandman. And there's a good proliferation of occult writing, like Giordano Bruno's work on astrology and memory palaces. Ghosts populate the literary world, from Dickens, Christmas Carol, and many other Christmas tales, to Henry James, Turn of the Screw. And there's no small amount of witches. Even Shakespeare can shake loose a trio for Macbeth. There are even bizarre, episodic phantom picaresques, like Melmoth the Wanderer, a kind of Don Quixote, but evil. There's no end of macabre tales, plays, and poems, and I could spend all night listing even more just off the top of my head. But tonight, I want to talk about a truly charming occult classic. It's the book famous for being ghostwritten in a literal sense. It's James Merrill's The Changing Light at Sandover, a 500-page epic poem written with the help of a Ouija board. James Merrill was born on March 3, 1926, in New York. He was the son of Charles Merrill, the founder of the investment firm of Merrill Lynch. James was the only offspring of Charlie's second marriage. Merrill's father had the habit of falling in love with a woman, marrying her, having a child or two, falling in love with another woman, leaving the previous wife, and moving on to the next. Merrill's mother and father separated when he was 11, as his father repeated his pattern, and though Merrill was raised in extreme luxury and tremendous privilege, he was always haunted by his parents' alcohol-fueled arguments and ultimate splits. 
He was tutored by a governess who taught him German and French. He attended prestigious prep schools and went to Amherst College. His schooling was interrupted briefly when he was drafted into the army, but he returned to graduate with honors, and his first mature book of poems was published by his former professor and, at the time, lover, Camon Fryer, in a volume called The Black Swan. Merrill came of age in his early 20s, which meant he officially inherited the trust his father had developed for him. He didn't really have to work, but Merrill considered his art his life. He worked at the craft and devoted himself to his poetry. But the reverse of that art-life dictum could also be true. Merrill's life was his art, both in a Wildean sense of cultivating your existence as an artwork and in the sense that his life provided the material for his art. Merrill's poems often revolve around the transformations of our perspective and memories over time, as well as the way that words themselves can aid in those transformations. Merrill reveled in puns and wordplay, enjoying the delicious proliferation of meanings that a thoughtful or cunning poet can deploy. Though the wordplay is often self-conscious and jocular, it's also serious play, as Merrill was extremely aware of the ways that language can allow us to articulate our own knowledge or understanding, even if that understanding doubles back on itself. Merrill became a master of sophisticated poems of self-interrogation, always with an awareness of the way the moment within the poem can work as a kind of brief, dazzling enchantment that allows us to luxuriate in the art, if only just for a moment. In 1953, Merrill met and fell in love with David Jackson, a fellow writer. The two were together for roughly 20 years. And in 1955, Jackson and Merrill started their sessions at the Ouija board. Merrill had an interest in the esoteric going back to his youth. In part, he was drawing from a line of late Victorian and modernist experimentation in the supernatural, in particular, the sincere experiments of William Butler Yeats. Yeats was a legitimate occultist, a member of the Order of the Golden Dawn, a follower of Madame Lavatsky's, and heavily invested in any attempt to contact the voices from the other side. Yeats even employed his wife, Georgie Hyde Lees, in the process. When she began speaking in her sleep, Yeats started cataloging the words, convinced that she was channeling spirits. He urged her into automatic writing and used what the spirits told him through George to develop a whole esoteric system of history that he described in the frankly bizarre work of Vision. Merrill was a follower of Yeats' poetics, and though he could be ironic about it in public, he was also a follower of Yeats' studies in the esoteric. He'd been given his first Ouija board in the same year he met Jackson by his friend, the writer and theologian, Frederick Buchner. It was a cheap toy store affair, something of a gag, but that didn't dampen Merrill's enthusiasm, and he had some early successes contacting the spirits, notably Walt Whitman and a colonial American farmer named Cable Barnes. But with Jackson, the connections to the other side deepened. The two men built their own board out of cardboard and used an old teacup as a planchette, and through the course of their sessions, they managed to conjure a consistent familiar spirit, Ephraim, an ancient homosexual Greek Jew who, coincidentally, had several life experiences somewhat in common with Jackson and Merrill. Ephraim gave them what Merrill called gossip from the great beyond, explaining reincarnation, appearing at cocktail parties to amuse guests, and urging the two on in their sex lives. Jackson was the hand, helping to guide the planchette, and Merrill the scribe, writing and interpreting the words that appeared. Over time, Merrill started incorporating the sessions into his own writing, and eventually a long narrative poem about the sessions emerged. Taking up about two-thirds of Merrill's 1976 volume Divine Comedies, the poet's seventh book of poems, the Book of Ephraim uses the conjured conversations as the material for its content, and regardless of reader credulity and the true nature of its transmission, 
The poem is dazzling. It tells the story of Merrill's and Jackson's Ouija experiments, their encounters with recently lost friends and family who helped them make sense of mortality, and Ephraim's descriptions of the afterlife and its mechanics, mainly the way reincarnation works and how if humankind isn't careful it could wipe itself out, along with all life on Earth, through nuclear experimentation and war. It's a kind of postmodern apocalyptic pastiche that engages the veil-ripping ideals of the old romantics while also acknowledging the inherent danger in the metaphor of utterly destroying an old world to make way for the new. Merrill was a fan of Wagnerian opera, the ring cycle in particular, and he loved the mythological motif of the dying off of the old gods. And yet, his grand tour took place in a Europe that was still mostly ashes, in the midst of recovering from World War II and the truly terrifying attempts on behalf of the Nazis to act out a Wagnerian fantasy through nihilistic politics. A good way to get at Sandover is as a kind of high art camp, self-aware yet entranced with the trappings of the apocalyptic. It's a delicate balancing act on the part of writer and reader both. The work is dazzling, but at the very least a little troubling. First off, Ephraim's politics, well, they're not most of ours. Betraying an aristocratic heir, Ephraim proclaims that overpopulation is taxing the mechanics of reincarnation. Reincarnation only works when souls can be recycled, but with so many bodies out there and only so many souls, options have become limited. The afterlife powers that be have had to grant human souls with animals, rat being the most common, and it had apparently gotten so dire that some humans have had to be born soulless. Merrill works to mitigate some of the really problematic dehumanization this idea poses, and he widely proclaims that it's not necessarily the circumstances one is born into that determines one's attribute, it's the soul inside. The circumstances are the parameters, but the soul determines what you can really do. Still, it's not hard to get squeamish at the idea that some people aren't fully people, especially in light of the connection such thinking and language has to actual genocide. Second, how seriously are we to take the talk of the spirits? This is all admittedly pretty goofy. Merrill was reasonably open about Ephraim, even bringing him up during a psychotherapy session. His psychologist suggested Ephraim was a sort of conjured go-between for Merrill and Jackson, a folie adieu, that allowed the men to tell each other what they really held back. The doctor urged Merrill not to keep going back to the board and just open up with Jackson, but Ephraim was too enticing, and the men continued to go back to him as a kind of third party in the relationship. Complicating this further is that the episode with the psychologist is worked into the poem as if Merrill is hedging his bets, incorporating skepticism into his esoteric games to ward off too critical a mindset. Ephraim is a light affair and some good metaphysical fun, but things get heavier in Mirabelle, Books of Number, the second work in the trilogy published in 1978. Merrill and Jackson are called back to the board, and instead of engaging exclusively with Ephraim and the other old spirits, though many do make appearances, the two must now take dictation from the bats, bizarre spirits of negation that work on a system of numerology and who, in contrast to the previous familiars, are more otherworldly, sometimes unworldly, and destructive. In a sense, they're sort of demons, and they compel Jackson and Merrill to take dictation for the sake of teaching the world to learn a few hard truths before it's too late. Merrill's ecological concerns are echoed by the bats who warn humanity about the hubris and exceeding the limits of the human by pushing science too far. The Faustian bargain made with technology threatens the ecosystem and the future of humanity, and the otherworldly warnings of the bats are clearly meant to shock us a bit into being a little more aware of our environment. 
J.M., as Merrill is called throughout the poem, is given the task to study the STEM fields to develop new metaphors to make the advances in physics, chemistry, math, and so forth more comprehensible to a wide audience. It's a heavy load, but not as heavy as the trip the bats lay on Merrill, Jackson, and the reader. Apparently, the dinosaurs who lived on Atlantis had gotten too close to the development of nuclear capabilities, which triggered an invasion by the aliens, the bats in another form, to explode their designs and destroy them on behalf of God, who's really more of a principle of biology and who deemed that the dinosaurs' world-destroying capabilities had gone quite too far. If this sounds a bit loony, it is, a point made often by Merrill himself within the poem. At several points, he yells, Oh, come on! at the board, resisting the out-and-out goofiness of it all. But Mirabelle is most concerned with metaphor. Metaphor can be a powerful way to get at the truth disguised by the trope by way of the trope itself. An extremely silly just-so tale may allow us to get at a metaphorical understanding of the dangers of ecological collapse more effectively than dry data comprehensible only to a trained professional can. At least... That seems to be the hope within the poem. As Merrill uncovers new information, his understanding alters, and his views on things shift again. In 1980, Merrill produced the third part of the trilogy, Scripts for the Pageant. Through an act of scrying, using a mirror to see into the other realm, Merrill and Jackson create a kind of schoolhouse where they can meet the spirits and work their ways up through epiphany after epiphany after epiphany until finally vouchsafed a vision of the divine. The poem is modeled in many ways on the Paradiso, and, well, it's better read than described. It has angels, Proust, Buddha, Jesus, Plato, ancient Egyptians, ancient aliens. If it's esoteric, vaguely theosophic, New Age, or archaically metaphysical, it all comes out in the final book, as Merrill and some recently deceased friends try to get to the bottom of the great beyond. It's heavy going, hard to explain, but a whole lot of fun. Eventually, the whole was collected into one book called The Changing Light at Sandover with a coda that ends the whole proceeding with Marilyn Jackson smashing the mirror and dispelling the magic. The performance seems to be over, but a neighbor knocks. Merrill lets him in and begins to read from the just-completed poem, The Book of Ephraim. Like Finnegan's Wake, the poem circles into itself and never finds completion, only perpetual renewal. Sandover poses problems for readers and critics alike. Like I said, Merrill places the reader in the odd position of needing to maintain credulity and skepticism. This is a position that Merrill himself apparently adopted. According to Langdon Hammer, author of the highly recommended biography, James Merrill, Life and Art, Merrill was extremely enthusiastic about the esoteric when he first began. Hammer, I think rightly, sees much of it as an eagerness in the ultra-conservative 50s to find a historical alternative to the crushing moral crusades of that moment, particularly in regards to sexuality. Ephraim allowed Merrill access to a non-straight past and gave precedence for his own erotic explorations. It was also a relief to have some kind of spiritual exercise that was exciting and vibrant, in opposition to the dry moralizing of Merrill's mother's Protestant Christianity. And Ephraim's esoteric philosophy, though harsh in its claims that some can be soulless, offers the outlet of reincarnation and renewal. Certainly a much more forgiving system than the Manichaean metaphysics that most of America claims to practice these days. Over time, as the landscape changed, as life went on, and as Merrill grew older and wiser, he vacillated between belief and skepticism, but he always went back to the board. That still leaves the question, though. How real were the sessions? Hammer addresses this by saying, well, real enough. Real enough at least to get the poem written. 
Hammer points to the work of the research psychologist Daniel Wegner to posit that, from a psychological point of view, our understanding of our own actions as self-motivated, i.e., we cause what we do, is not static but shifts minute to minute. I'll risk a lawsuit to quote Hammer at length on this phenomenon from page 202 of his biography. He writes, In the case of an automatism like the Ouija board, Wegner explains, the feeling of not doing is conditioned by several factors. One is expectant attention, the simple expectation that the automatism will happen. Another factor is movement confusion, which is inescapable in the type of automatism in which Merrill and Jackson were engaged. The operation of the Ouija board pointer considerably weakens because it greatly complicates the perception of agency. With two hands on a teacup, one person's slight movements combine with the other person's movements, and the co-actors make minute and unconscious adjustments for each other, with the result that neither partner can know just what part of the action they personally have created. The uncertainty is amplified by the momentary delay between a thought and its realization, which is enforced by the rudimentary technology of the Ouija board, even when a teacup is moving at a great rate. So when the thought that a letter might turn out to be the first part of a specific word is gradually realized by the spelling out of that same word, the lapse of time, combined with the sense of not doing, that comes with the force of another person's hand on the planchette, makes the initial thought feel more like an intuition than an intention. When it works, the Ouija board produces a pleasingly double sensation of surprise and inevitability, like an effective rhyme or witty remark. I think this best accounts both for Merrill's or anyone's enchantment at the board, the, the enchantment of the poem, and the simultaneous belief and disbelief the poet had for his whole project. That doubleness was Merrill all over. Scripts for the pageant is tellingly arranged in three sections. The first, yes. The second, an ampersand reading, and. The third, no. Yes, and, no. It's a frustrating poem to get at, but well worth it. So if you find yourself spending the month of October pondering the diminishing boundaries between the living and the dead, try moving on from the monsters, and give the changing light at Sandover a try. The otherworldly and uncanny has never been so worldly and urbane. A warm welcome back to those of you who made it back, and a little bit of advice to take with you before you go. Not all knowledge is safe and some things you can't unhear. The smartest of you will count your blessings and stay clear of dark corners and dangerous downloads. But those of you more daring who laugh in the face of fear will undoubtedly be back like a moth drawn to the flame for the next installment of Agoraphobia. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.